first from Psalm 120 and the second from the Gospel of Luke. A Song of Ascents. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides, you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And the second reading is Luke 15, beginning at verse 11, which can be found on page 1049. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you for your word that speaks so profoundly into the longings of our hearts. And we pray, please speak to us now by your Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We just heard probably the best-known story ever told, the story of the prodigal son. And it taps in to what I think is perhaps the deepest longing of the human heart. 
It's a story about a man who ends up a long way from home and then finally comes to his senses and returns home. And the Bible is a story about human beings made to be at home with God, created to live in the Garden of Eden, where God lives with us. And yet about a way in which human beings have determined to leave home, to turn away from God, and the punishment exactly fits the crime, banishment from home. So even though some of us may have lived all our lives within the same small area, we are born, spiritually speaking, away from home separated from God. It's no surprise that this sense of home longing, so deep in the human heart, is found at every level of our culture. Think of the songs that you hear. Michael Bublé, I want to go home. Or John Denver, take me home, country road, to the place where I belong. Or the movies, E.T., phone home. Or going much further back, The Wizard of Oz. And there is Dorothy, a long way from Kansas, and she follows the yellow brick road. There's no place like home. In higher culture, it's there in the poetry. Robert Browning, home thoughts from abroad. Oh, to be in England, now that April's there. It's the theme of the most famous story in the world, the prodigal son, it's the theme of the whole of the Bible, beginning with human beings at home with God. And then banishment from home, we live east of Eden. And then God making an amazing promise to restore people to the home that we were made for. And that promise is foreshadowed in the history of the Old Testament, where the people of Israel end up a long way from home in Egypt. God rescues them and brings them into the promised land, at home with God, living in the heart of that land, in the temple, the symbolic place of His presence in Jerusalem. But then those people turning away from God, you get a repeat of the story of the Garden of Eden, they end up away from home in exile in Babylon. And then God brings them back home. And that ultimate story is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes from His heavenly home into the far country, the distant land of this present world. And He does so to seek a people that He might bring us back home in relationship with God. We Christians, we're at home, spiritually speaking. We have entered the loving embrace of the Father, as the prodigal son story tells us. And yet, there's a sense that we're still not there. We're on a journey. One of the first descriptions of Christians is that they're described as followers of the way, on a journey with Jesus, living at the moment a long way from home, in the Babylon, as the Bible puts it, of this present world, on a journey towards our heavenly Jerusalem. Ultimately, only then, will be at home. And so these psalms that we're looking at in the next few weeks speak very much to the Christian. They're psalms of a journey, psalms 121, uh, 120 uh, rather, to 134, known as the songs of ascent. Not originally written as one block, there's four of them I think are called 
of David, maybe by David or about David, one of them of Solomon. They, they were written at different times, but they seem to have been brought together and were used very likely as the Jews were on a journey, three times a year, their journey towards Jerusalem for the great festivals of Passover and Pe Pentecost and Tabernacles. And these Psalms, it seems, had a particular resonance during the time of the exile because the people of exile in Babylon longed to be on that journey home towards Jerusalem. They're called songs of ascent, literally of the goings up. Uh, students talk about going up to Oxford. doesn't matter where you come from, you go up to Oxford. We go up to London, even when you're coming down from the north. We go up to London, and Jews went up to Jerusalem. And we're ultimately on a journey up to the new Jerusalem of heaven. Now, I don't know if you're on the journey. Some of you might say, well, I, I'm not a Christian, and you haven't begun to walk with Jesus. I wonder what's holding you back. These first three psalms are especially appropriate, and we're going to look at them in five triplets, these psalms. These first three psalms are especially appropriate at the beginning of the journey, maybe addressing those who are wondering, will I actually start? Encouraging others to keep going. Maybe you've begun the journey a long time ago, but you feel you're rather limping now. It's hard work in the Christian journey. Maybe you even slumped to the roadside. You're hardly walking at all. Well, again, I hope these psalms, which I'm describing as foundations for a life of pilgrimage, will spur you on to keep going. So we'll look at three psalms just briefly. The first one, dissatisfaction, a long way from home, Psalm 120. This is where the journey begins. Now some people today like traveling for the sake of it. Very few in the ancient world thought like that. Because in the ancient world, travel meant considerable discomfort and very great danger. So why would you even start? Well, this traveler starts because he's not happy, because he knows he's not at home. Verse 1, I call on the Lord in my distress. He's miserable. And the reason for his misery, as you read on, is quite clear. He's a long way from home. Verse 5, woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Those names, those places mean little to us. But Meshech was in what is now modern-day Turkey. To the Jewish mind, that's as far as you can imagine up north. And Kedar, that's in the Arabian tribal areas, really as far as you can think of down south. What's striking is that they're a long way from each other. You couldn't have lived in both of them. These are symbolic places. They're symbolic places because not only are they a long way from each other, they're a long way from Jerusalem. That's the point. They're a long way from God, where God symbolically dwelt in the temple. They're a long way from home. It's as if the psalmist is saying, I live amongst Philistines. I live amongst barbarians. I live amongst those who do not honor God. In New Testament language, I live in this present world, a world in hostility to God. 
It's a world marked by deceit, verse 2. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Right from the beginning, this fallen world is marked by lies. It's because they listened to Satan's lies that Adam and Eve sinned in the first place. Oh, you won't surely die. If you eat of that tree that God forbade you not to eat from, no, you won't surely die. God isn't the God of judgment. And anyway, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Life will be so much better if you do what God had told you not to do. In fact, of course, it made them miserable eating of that fruit. They ended up a long way from home, and Satan's lies continue down the ages. And ever since, the world in opposition to God has been marked by lies. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 talks about the natural way of human beings. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. We're worshipping creatures. We're made to worship God, but again and again we worship other things, idols. And the pull of idolatry is so powerful because it lies to us. It tells us that something else, something in this world will ultimately satisfy us. If we only hitch ourselves to something in this world, then we'll feel at home, satisfied. That's the lie of the idol of materialism. Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. And what's the lie? If you only get more money, if you only have more things, then you'll feel content. You'll be at home. It's the lie of hedonism or eroticism. I still remember as a very young Christian, a speaker saying, people around you will say, you haven't lived until you've had sex. You haven't lived until you've had sex with someone else. And he paused and said, that is a lie. It's a very powerful lie. If only I can have pleasure then I'll feel at home, then I'll be satisfied. But nothing in this present world can satisfy the ache for home that lies in the human heart. Perhaps at a more fundamental level than ever before, our contemporary world is marked by a rejection of truth. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, said this, truth is not discovered, it is invented. So there's a, a rejection of the very notion of truth. There is no such thing as objective truth. Someone said, in the postmodern world, opinions are shaped not by arguments, but by subjective feelings, often triggered by a sense of our identity. We're predisposed to believe the claims of our tribe and reject anything contrary. And of course, as we spend lots of time on our computer and on our phones, the algorithms ensure that we're fed the material that entrenches our views more and more. And the result is a profoundly divided society. And there's another feature of a world opposed to God. Not only deceit, but division. Verse 6, the psalmist lives amongst those who hate peace. 
Verse 7, they are for war. We see that played out on the global stage. We prayed for the situation in Ukraine, Yemen, Israel, Gaza. We see this warfare not just in the global stage, we see it very close at home in our own communities, in our own families, on our screens with the internet warriors attacking one another. Nobody's safe. One slip of the tongue, or more likely one slip of the finger, and there's a pile on, and the public shaming. Cannot believe you believe that. And lots of hostility, not least, to Christian views. Here's the world the psalmist inhabits, a world of deceit and division. That's our world. And how do we feel about it? Does it feel like an alien place? Or have we begun to feel at home? Well, that would be a worry. And here the psalmist doesn't try to settle down and fit in. That's one way of dealing with that profound sense of alienation. Just go along with it, try and fit in. Another way is to try and escape. So we have to live in this world, just enter a fantasy world and escape in the world of movies or celebrities or a drunken or drug-fueled haze. Now our psalmist, like the prodigal son, when he recognizes this is not as it should be, he comes to his senses that he longs to go home and he cries out to God, I call on the Lord in my distress. Save me, Lord, from lying lips. And he's assured, verse 3, that God will bring judgment on the deceitful tongue. He will punish the warriors who divide. He says, no, I I don't want to associate with this anymore. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm for peace. I don't want to settle in this present world. And it's that conviction, that dissatisfaction a long way from home that triggers the journey in the first place. And maybe we've become just too attached to this present world. That's why we've never started the Christian journey or we've stalled in it. And we need to pray that God would feed into our hearts the sentiment of Psalm 120. Let's move on to Psalm 121. And I want you to read it with me. I'm going to read verses 1 to 2, then you 3 and 4, then me 5 and 6, you 7 and 8. I'll start. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. So we're thinking of the journey, and if some are held back because they're quite happy in this distant land, they've settled there. Others have begun to realize, no, this is not where I want to live. This is not the world 
as it should be. None of these things make me feel at home. But still we're cautious about setting out on the journey. Why? Because it feels scary. There are dangers that we'll meet on the way. I was talking to a friend who leads quite a number of events weeks at university, and some of you students have been at the OIQ, the University Christian Union Events Week, and there are opportunities for the university to hear about the claims of Christ. And he said a number of years ago, the big question was, is it true? Is it true? He said now, increasingly, the big, big question is, is it safe? Well, there's a nervousness. Can I trust myself to this God? I don't want to lose control. What will my friends think of me if I do begin the Christian journey? Because it'll mean leaving this former place in which I used to belong, recognizing that's not home anymore. And so it'll mean me going in the opposite direction to others. What will they make of it? Can I really trust this? And maybe that's the reason why some of you have begun the journey, but you're not going very fast or far at the moment, because you're worried. It feels hard. Well, this second psalm in this series, Psalm 121, speaks of confidence, protection on the road. Verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? It's not entirely clear why he's looking up to the mountains. Does he think of the mountains as a potential place to hide if an attack comes? Or does he think, rather, that actually up there, that's where the threat comes, that's where the attackers could come down from as he travels, perhaps, through the valley? Either way, it's clear he's aware of dangers on this road. Not safe. And so that question, is the Christian journey safe? And I have to say to you, in one sense, no, it isn't safe. And Jesus didn't say, come to me and follow me and all will be easy and all will be well. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And that involves a journey with challenges and difficulties, a journey going against the flow. It's a journey that led him to the cross. In one sense, it's not safe. In another sense, it could not be safer. The psalmist is wonderfully confident as he sets out. Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, you couldn't have a greater supporter for the one who made everything and controls everything. Verse 3, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, who, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I've often told you the story of the Native American boy on an initiation ceremony, forced, like all the boys at that age, to spend the night in the forest on his own. And he was terrified. Every rustle in the trees, every sound of an animal or bird terrified him. But he got through the night, and just as dawn was breaking, he heard the crack of a twig from behind a tree. He looked up, startled, and from behind the tree, came his dad. He'd been there all through the night, making sure 
that no ultimate harm came to his boy. And so it is with God. We can't see him. At times we feel very much alone, but he is watching. And that word watching comes again and again. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. He's our protective shade from the blazing sun in daytime. He's our shield from all perils and dangers of the night. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Not saying that no troubles will ever come to those who go on the journey with Jesus. That is not what the Bible promises. In fact, in a wonderful passage in Romans 8, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Why ask those questions if those are not real possibilities for Christian people? We could face any of those things. But he goes on to say, in all these things, not from all these things, but in all these things, we're more than conquerors because God is with us. And he will use even terrible things for our good to strengthen our faith and our maturity in Christ and our dependence on him as he takes us to the guaranteed end of the journey in glory. So we needn't fear. And I wonder, some of us need to, to listen to all three of these psalms, but for some, maybe one of these is what you need right now. Maybe because you know these things are true, but you're not beginning the journey, you're frightened. Or because you're going through a particularly hard time right at the moment, it's hard to keep going. The words of that wonderful hymn, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength and in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. So Psalm 120, let's have the other slide up. Psalm 120 is dissatisfaction, a long way from home. Psalm 121 is confidence protection on the road. And then the final one, Psalm 122, longing, peace in God's city. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, and then I want you to, to read 6 to 9. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. So as we travel, it can be helpful sometimes just to look back and remember where we've come from. So why do I keep going in this journey? Well, look back and think, no, that was not a good place. I was not at home there. I don't want to go back there. 
and then look up. Dangerous. We just look around and we see all the dangers and we're terrified and we stand still. Now look up and remember that God is watching over us and He's protecting us. And here in this psalm, the final foundation for pilgrimage, for actually getting going, is to look forward. It's a hard road. But here the psalmist is looking forward to where he's heading. The destination, and that should give a spring in the step. Because there's no greater joy than to meet with God and be in His presence. Verse 1, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's said that camels can detect water in the desert up to 50 miles away. And once they get the, the scent of the water, they head unerringly to the oasis. And we Christians have got the scent of, of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. At least we should have. And that should keep us moving forward. It sounds in verse 2 as if the destination's already reached. It's a bit quick, this journey. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. And if you think they're saying these psalms as they're heading towards Jerusalem, almost immediately it seems as if they've arrived. I think he's remembering a previous time when he's got there. Remember, that have gone three times a year in pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And that reminder of the joy of being there in the past is an incentive to keep going there and to get there again. Some people see a pattern in these triplets. I've mentioned there are 15 psalms of ascent, so-called, and we're looking them in five groups of three, and some people see a pattern in the first of each triplet, some distress described. We saw that in Psalm 120, the distress of living away from home. In the second, a reminder of God's power to protect and to save, and we saw that, God's watching over you. And in the third, security, on arrival, home in Jerusalem. There's something in that. I think it's a little over neat. But it's certainly here as he remembers the wonder of Jerusalem. And there's a sense, even as we continue in the Christian journey, that we can say, yes, our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. If we turn to Christ, we are already spiritually at home, wrapped in the Father's embrace. Already we can be sure we are fully known, unconditionally loved, eternally safe. The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says this, Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we belong. We are, spiritually speaking, already there in the presence of all God's people. And yet at the same time, that's still to come. And we're looking forward to the glory of this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, as Revelation 21 puts it. And there we'll see it in its full perfection. It couldn't be more secure, verse 3. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. It's the present world that is the impermanent, insubstantial shadow land. It's the world to come that stands forever, whereas human cities and empires come and go and come and go. Verse 4, it's a place of glorious unity. This is where the tribes go up to the tribes, the tribes of the Lord. On earth, the tribes so often fighting. But this glorious vision of all God's people unitedly coming 
to praise Almighty God. Verse 5, it's a place where Christ reigns. There stands the throne of judgment. It's a just rule. The thrones of the house of David. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate king of the line of David. How we long for justice, at least I hope we do. Think of the terrible injustices of this present world. But one day all will be right and will be well. And as the psalmist travels towards Jerusalem, that's what he's longing for. As we travel towards the new Jerusalem, that's what we're looking forward to. But we're conscious that even though we've received it in part, it's not here yet fully. Which is why as we travel, we pray. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Of course, we, we should be praying about the current horrific situation in the land of Israel and Gaza. That's not what this psalm's about, though. Because the reflection of the heavenly Jerusalem on earth now is God's people, the church. And sadly, too often, the church is not as secure as it should be. It's attacked from outside. It's not as united as it should be. It's divided from within. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I'll say, peace be within you. What we should be longing is that people in this current world of deceit and division should look at the church and see a bastion of truth and unity. And sadly, too often, the deceit and division of the world enters the church. And that should grieve us. And the result is that people aren't looking at the church and thinking, I want some of that. I can smell something of home in what I see amongst these people. I want some of that. I want to travel with them. They're heading to a place that I want to be at. That's what we should be longing for and praying for, for our own church at St. Ed's. The people will see something here that they don't see outside. I want some of that. What should we be praying for the church throughout the world? For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your prosperity. So how are you doing on the journey? Maybe you've never set out, and if you're not a Christian, we're so pleased you're here today. What's holding you back? And we pray that you might begin to get a sense of dissatisfaction, recognize that nothing in this present world will make you fully feel at home. And only once we realize that will we begin to want to move forward. But then there's a danger, all sorts of dangers around us, and that should paralyze us, or could paralyze us, and we need to look up at that point and have the confidence to know that God is watching over us. He's our protector. And through all the excitements and the challenges of the Christian journey, let's nurture within us by God's Spirit that, that longing for ultimate peace in God's city that will keep us moving forward. Let me pray. Loving Father, may these psalms increasingly speak for us and reflect the longings of our hearts that they might spur us on on the journey.
to the new Jerusalem. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.